sit back in your seats, get something to eat, and watch this movie. Don't let the kids see it, because, well, let, let, we'll let you hear the, the um, beginning of Thank you. Hello and welcome to Left of the Projector. I am your host, Evan, back again with another film discussion from the left. I'm happy to announce that you can now sign up and be a paid subscriber to the show directly from Spotify. So you can just pop on there and support the show. Also, if you would be so kind as to smash that ratings button on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this show, right now as always you can follow the show on tiktok and instagram at left of the projector pod enjoy the show all right we will get into the discussion this week on american psycho and joining me to discuss back again hungry rye first time guest randy as well as Destiny, who is the host of Closeted History, an LGBTQ plus stories of the past, a podcast where they explore and learn about the rich and diverse history of LGBTQ plus community. You can listen to that podcast on all platforms. So thank you all for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, so I think everyone knows this movie, American Psycho. Uh, It's been a while since it came out, but I think that the number one thing that I think of when this movie is that I think we talked about a few weeks ago on the Fight Club episode is just the absolute misinterpretation of this movie in general as kind of what it represents, what it means, what forgetting the book aside, just the movie. Uh, I don't know what anyone's kind of. It's like the cultural significance of the Patrick Bateman like profile picture that will comment the most vile, like misogynistic, homophobic, racist things. But they didn't actually like learn anything from the material that was being produced. Like they didn't realize that it's a little bit more complex. It was satirized. It has a bit more of a different meaning, but they just take it for service value. Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah I feel like, like Patrick Bateman has kind of become like the literally me <laughs> guy. And you know, that a, a certain type kind of, flock to his ideals and you know the way that he's being like personified in the in the film um but you know like you said that they're not really getting the point (laughs) of the content yeah they latch on to like his character solely and they don't really i think this is the case in lots of movies especially from conservative side is they latch on to a character or something that they feel like they identify with or they want to identify with and they just ignore the fact that he what he actually is in the movie, you know, I think, I think the number one thing I was saying before uh, we came on is that this movie obviously took place in the late eighties, you know, Reagan era, you know, I guess totally tail, tail end of Reagan era. I think it's something like 88 or 87, something like that, mm-hmm. but it's, it is just, you know, eighties culture to the max. I mean, I was very young at this time, so I don't really have any memory of it, but I feel like if you were rich in the eighties, this movie probably, was probably accurate yeah i mean full disclosure i was like in my early teens uh in the mid 80s um which makes me feel old to say that but you know uh it there was like 
this sort of admiration, you know, like the bro, the finance bros today, not much different from a lot of the guys back then who kind of wanted to have the life that he had or, you know, the privilege and the money. And, you know, he had like all the, the, the most expensive clothes. So that, you know, there was like a lot of guys who wanted that. And they probably still do today when they, when they watch it. Um, but I do think it's funny in general because I, I was, I think I was watching an interview or reading an interview and, um, he was saying that he, the first time he read the script, he's like, this is a satire, right? Like he was like, it, it wasn't sold to him as satire, but he was like, he caught on really quickly that, okay, this is satire. This is really funny, but most people don't like. Most guys who admire Patrick Bateman, like that I've encountered, like they just never got that. Do you know when the does anyone know when the book came out? I should have. I didn't see that. It's probably I. I don't remember. Probably, and I assume it had to be like late eighties, early nineties, like going back, probably. Um, I think so. But it, it's very much. Um, it it like completely targets all of the things I think about when I think of the eighties, which is like the growing wealth inequality and there's like the obviously one of the first murder scenes in the in the movie or that he does is the homeless man on the street and it's just like he he feel like you think he's compassionate especially in his speech later on which i think is one of the funniest uh quotes in the movie is his little impassioned speech about how he should help everyone but clearly he doesn't it's i don't know it's it's uh, we can talk about that too but he he like they do a good job of showing, I think New York City on like both spectrums, you know, with like this poor person living on the street, and then him talking about his like marble countertops, and the book is just endless talking about all of the things. I mean, it's 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 crazy. Yeah, the way that like um, he kind of describes, I looked up some stuff about the book, and it. Um, it's also described the same kind of in the movie where he's like going on and on about like his skincare and he has this and he has that. And it kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, Fitzgerald, like from the great Gatsby in the way that he like, you know, portrays that decadence and overindulgence in the way that he like describes, you know, every single little detail about Gatsby's party um, that, you know, you kind of see that parallel um, in the way that Patrick is like describing his regular routines or like the places that he was going with his friends or well, friends <laughs> and uh, you know, like all the fancy meals and that kind of thing. So it, it was just interesting to kind of see that parallel. It's all about maintaining status. Yeah, exactly. Symbols, right. That's why he gets so deeply offended when like people get his clothing wrong. He's like, no, it's Giorgio Armani. Like, and then he kills somebody over it. Like, it's it's very interesting. We see that in like Fight Club as well, and a lot of stuff like modern day. Like, you see like the younger crowd with like Supreme, like these name brands, and like the cultural significance it puts you like higher on like on this pyramid of like clout. But like they cling to it, like their whole society of like the economic ruling class, like. You see it with the Kardashians a lot, with having the most bougie cars and everything. It doesn't make yeah. you less of a human being. Like you could still get the job done in like not a Giorgio Armani suit, but it was just maintaining that or like having the most. Oh, what was it with the business cards? 
Like, oh, that's like that famous scene, yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh that's God, why yeah. he like ends up killing uh what's his name? Newman. Or is it Paul, Paul Owens? Paul Ryan. No, uh, Paul. he's played by Jared Leto. Yeah. yeah. Paul Allen. Paul Allen, sorry. Paul Allen, yeah, yeah. The whole reason why he wants to kill him is because he has a better business card. <laughs> like he knows that it's better and he's like throwing like a tantrum in his mind but like you know very cold and calculated on the outside and like it's just patrick bateman and christian bale's performance is just it's amazing the way that he was able to really capture that character Uh, a fun fact that i learned when i was reading so it's partially on imdb and i saw this elsewhere is he apparently got his like the the style he used was based on a Tom Cruise interview from mm. him on like Jay Letterman or Leno or Letterman or something like his mannerisms. And then he, he's like a super method actor from what I understand is he like, he disassociates from all the people and yeah, he, he, his performance is pretty masterful. I think he referenced as a matter of fact, Tom Cruise's dead eyes. Yeah. When he, when he was talking about that, that's, did that's you catch true. that part? Yeah. Well, that, well, one thing I, I um, you made me think of, uh, Rai, was the like the material aspect of of all of it is, you know, all of it. Oh, so this actually goes into a line he says later in the movie when he's with Reese Witherspoon's character, his you know fiance. She's like telling him that he should quit his job, and he says, you know, I can't quit my job. Or no, you don't like your job. Why do you go? And he says he wants to fit in. And I feel like that line encapsulates mm. everything because. He went to Harvard. Like he, his, clearly, his dad has some. His job, his 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 entire position there seems like a nepotism hire that they kind of like hide a bit. You know, he doesn't do any work. He just kind of sits there and listens to music. I mean, it, it almost feels like very much what <laughs> like a finance bro would do. They just like do the bare minimum, get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars, and then you know go out totally. to the club. And, I don't know if you noticed those business cards. They all say vice president yep. on there. And I it got me thinking, you know, having worked in corporate uh, cultures for most of my career, like they pretty much, uh, in my perception, they pretty much don't do anything. I mean, if if you, like they call it uh, thought leadership, right? So that's that's what they do. Right. And um, <laughs> it, it's, it's essentially they don't do anything. I mean, let's be real. And uh, they, they totally captured that spot on. And I did want to also mention uh, how you just you pointed out that he's listening to music a lot in a lot of scenes in the movie. Mm-hmm. He, that's the only time when he seems serene. So he's like escaping from whatever you know, conflict is going on. He's always very content when he has the, the music playing. Uh, one thing I noticed neither here nor there, but it, it stood out when you mentioned the, uh, the headphones. Yeah. I mean, in the, in the, I actually, in the, in the movie, they apparently, well, this is like another fun fact is apparently the, this movie only cost $7 million was a budget for this movie, which is kind of insane. And apparently more than half of it was, was music licensing for the songs they used. So like barely anything went towards the actual movie. It was all the song. So it, it seemed like it was important that they had the music because it kind of like before he kills someone, he's like talking about Huey Lewis in the news, like in that, you know, the the dance scene, which is hilarious. Like, feel, like, feel like uncharacteristic. But he's like doing it to put himself up above everyone. Like, look how much I know about this and like the cultural significance of Whitney Houston. 
Like it's very interesting. And I understand why they paid so much money, yeah. half of their budget just for the license. Well, in, in the, um, and it, it, it's funny you mentioned that Whitney Houston, I don't remember how it plays out exactly in the book, but they make fun of him for liking Whitney Houston. I think at the club, like a song comes on and I think they, you know, there's constant like homophobia of calling each other gay and all these things. But I feel like that was, you know, they looked down upon him because he likes Whitney Houston. Like, God forbid, he, you know, he likes one of the most paint famous and popular musicians of all time. Yeah. In that scene, as a matter of fact, I just watched that scene before we started. And I was like a little shocked because he, he almost became emotional talking about the song at the end. I was like, like, I don't know, whenever he does this kind of thing with when he talks to people, it's very almost what they call, uh, what do you call that? Um, virtue signaling or, you know, it's very performative. Mm, uh, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So when he got like kind of emotional talking about Whitney Houston, I was like, okay, like he's deliberately trying to seem emotional or is he emotional? That was a little weird <laughs> watching that. Yeah, I think that that's like his narcissism within his character like really comes out because he's trying to like mimic emotions of like what he thinks that things should be like, you know, just basing it off of appearances and like, you know, kind of keeping up with the Joneses kind of way. It also seeps into like the way that he is able to portray emotion because he doesn't really feel it. I mean, you know, his eyes are those, yeah. those cold eyes. Yeah. It's funny. I'm glad you brought up the narcissism, right? Because mm-hmm. it's very like his characters to me, just classic MPD. Um, and especially in that line where in the beginning where he's like, I'm simply not here. Yeah, I know? wrote that down. It's he, he's yeah. like dissociating from it's haunting from real from like reality. Like he doesn't even seem to exist in a sense. Like his body exists, but he doesn't really have any. He has no emotion. Like he's playing a character. Yes, exactly. He's an NPC. You know. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good way to think about it. Yeah, I don't know. That's um, I, I wrote that down. Lie down too is that he, you know. Uh, I think he also said, wait, so I think the full, I didn't have the full lineup. It was like, there is no real me. There is an enigma, does he say? I my I can't read my own handwriting. And he's doing this like, well, he has his like face mask on and he's doing his like, you know, $50,000 skincare routine. And yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's like part of why some people like kind of identify with him because like, you know, ideally, like he has the best skincare, like, you know, I, I need a routine like that. He's in really good shape. You know, he has this job that he's making really good money. He's supposed to be what we would deem as successful, but like, he's just still so hollow, even though, you know, he's got everything that he could want, but you know, there's not really any emotion behind it. And I think that that it kind of like sets up the the critique of capitalism and ultimately how like it's just empty. <laughs> well, do you think that that's? But do you think the? I mean, and I, I well, I have a question about that. Is do you think that the um, his like the representation representation of him as you know working in corporate culture, working in America as you know under capitalism, is that what? I feel like I don't know how to ask this question. Is, is was he like the stand-in of that, or you know, 
or is it more to meant to be looking at it as just like the finance, you know, bourgeoisie rich kind of end of things? Because, you know, it's the same even if you're, you know, middle class or working class, whatever. The difference is you don't have this opulent lifestyle. You're still kind of empty in the sense of working for a company who doesn't give a shit about you, you know? Yeah, I think that like it could be maybe both. Um, I think that like as they are kind of replaceable and have identities that are seemingly the same, that they're very interchangeable. And so it could be kind of like what you were saying about the bourgeoisie. But I also think that you're right that, you know, (laughs) under capitalism, like we all kind of feel that that hollowness because ultimately you're being exploited. You're either working class or you're exploiting someone else's labor. Um, And I I think that there's no way around that. But um, it is interesting that like he I, I think that because he feels so empty, even though he's supposed to be like enjoying these things, just that juxtaposition, like, you know, I, I think that it, it really opens things up um, as far as like the critique on capitalism. Yeah. And I think it building on, I think what you were saying with like, um, there's, what are they like the, the theme, the resounding theme going through is like, you're not meant to like Patrick Bateman. Right. Like, throughout it, he is not a likable character. You're not supposed to be able to relate with him. The majority of people consuming it are not part of the same class as him. And like, I think it's exposing just like how vile like these people are. Like they have everything and it's still not enough. Meanwhile, he's like spitting, him and his friends are spitting on the homeless people. They're counting them as they're going by. So they're a bougie restaurant where they're being served on by like other like in the taxi like how shitty they are to like the taxi drivers and like the waitresses and whatnot like they just could not they don't care they think of them as less than human because they are so much further up because of their like social capital that they've accumulated yeah and the the taxi driver like the ending is different for the book i i so i think that like you know because how just poorly he's treating the taxi drivers, sex workers, you know, just people in general that like the ending of the book kind of changes that a little bit because like the taxi driver, you know, holds a gun to him and takes his Rolex. You feel some consequences, even if they're very minor and monetary. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like in the film, I think that he's much more likable because like we don't see as much violence. That's true. And what, one thing I saw or, um, you know, we, we, kind of, we didn't really mention like finance, but we did mention a little bit. But there's also like the idea of just like the overall greed involved mm. in them. It's kind of like underlying just in general. And like that's what finance capital and all that is doing. They're just hoarding as much money, making as much money. And so like they're almost seen as like having to kill in their industry, but not but like in a figurative sense. I don't know. And he's literally killing in a, it drives him to kill in a, in like a literal sense. I don't know. Maybe that doesn't. Yeah. In the book, it talks more about him being like pro apartheid and like, I think ultimately being like pro imperialism. So like he knows that there is a cost that goes along with it. Like these racist things that they do in the company, like how they play. It's like the global context and like geopolitics. He's very aware. And I wish they would have put that more in the film. If I remember correctly, I don't think they did. No. Um, but they like they're aware they know what's going on well there's that whole like impassioned little speech he gives in the, in the book it's in like a dinner party i kind of liked it 
better in the movie, I feel like, because I mean, I just like that they're in the restaurant and he's like, oh, I got we have to get the, the good table. Like everything in his mind is like centered around if he. It has to be perfect. Otherwise, you know, someone might look at him and be like, oh, you know, that guy isn't you know, the alpha male in the room. But yeah, that speech is, is pretty funny. So I have it. I wrote the quote down. I won't read the whole thing. But the one part that was really funny is he 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 actually says he wants to end apartheid in the in that speech in the movie. And then he says, like, we have to slow the nuclear arms race, control the influx of illegal immigrants, which I also think is funny because we do have to bring up the Trump kind of mentions, I think, too, in this <laughs> as well. Um, but I feel like he... The, the author clearly was pulling on like all of those culturally culturalish war kind of things that I feel like were only kind of new in the 80s. So like that's when they became like the big thing, you know, with Reagan too. Totally. I, it, that scene that you mentioned. Um, and again, it, for me, it, it, it was like when he wants to oppress somebody, uh, he, he becomes very performative, does the whole virtue signal thing with that speech that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. And then when, when you see him, in his real self, like at the dry cleaners, he's telling the lady off. He's like, I'm going to kill you, whatever. He's a total jackass uh, when he's being himself and he doesn't care about who in the room, you know, is judging him. His but mask comes wants, off. Yeah, his mask totally comes off. So it's very interesting when you look at the audience and who he's talking to. There's a mask sometimes and then he comes off other times. He's kind of like a bureaucrat, like how they'll say things to save face and like get popularity. And then we all know how that goes. Yeah. Yeah. The the one thing I, I didn't write down in any of my notes and I was just, I don't know what, what someone said, uh, one of you said that made me think of it, is that, and maybe this plays into like the alpha kind of uh, toxic masculinity aspect of it under there, is like the role of the women in this movie and not just like the like the girlfriends and like their friend circle, Evelyn and um, what are the other ones names? Courtney. And what, and like, I feel like they, they even have like a speech later when they're in maybe the bathroom or at the club or something, how like women aren't allowed to like women can't actually think for themselves or something like you can't get a woman who's both smart and pretty or something. I don't remember the exact line. It's toward the end. And just the, the overall, like, perception of women in this movie is i mean horrific and then it, that plays into i think why you see people who like patrick Freeman and want to be him is because that's how they view women you know so it makes perfect sense they identify with it exactly yeah yep. mm-hmm. they like view women as being like property right because like their condition of belief like capitalist ideology suggests that but also it's like him and the way that he seeks out like these vulnerable like um sex workers of various amount like in the book you see it a lot more but he's like preying on them exploits them and then he kills them because he thinks it's something to like dominate and he makes them do what he wants like like which is like i i understand like their job but like to the point where like he starts to drug like women in his life to get them to interact and play in a way that it satisfies him it's always about him being like on top and getting what he needs out of every situation it's like a game i mean it literally is he, he plays them like a game you know it's it's really not yeah life to him it's more like these people are just pawns in his little his world i guess yeah they have like no value to him other than to serve whatever purpose he wants 
Yeah, he talked about it in like when one of the last times he picks up, I can't remember what her name is, Christine maybe, where he has the thought to himself like, well, this is just like pennies to me, how much I can pay her to get it done. Yeah, he's just like, oh, it's pennies to me. But like to her, it's like he gives her like $1,600. It's life-changing amount of money in the 80s. Yeah. Even now. $1,600. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and the the thing, that's the other thing in the movie that it happens, there's numerous times, I think one towards the end when they're in the club, is he desperately wants people to know how rich he is. Like he wants them to ask him like how much he makes. And it's... Yes. Pulls out the platinum Amex. Yeah. Yeah. And he, I mean, they say, so they say in the movie, I think at some point he makes a hundred... $80,000. $80,000. And I looked it up. If it's like late 80s money, it's like half a million. So we're talking a lot of money. You know, it's a, a very... And he's only like 27, right? Yeah. Yep. Yes. And I guess he'd worked there for a couple of years. I mean, he probably went to college. He went to Harvard and probably Harvard Business School and or yep. somewhere else. And so he's only working a couple of years. And he's now, you know, he's like a practically a millionaire. It, it almost even seems like the amount of stuff he has almost seems like over the amount of what you could afford, but I guess the 80s were a different time, you know, less inflation or, or whatever. Yeah, but we, we talked a little bit about like the politics in it, you know, with the, his character. I think kind of already like his, he's just kind of a conflict. You don't really like know what his politics are. And I think it's goes into what you all have been saying is that he, is playing like a role of politics and his persona to people. So you don't really know if he actually, I don't feel like he actually has any real opinions, right? Like this, what is his actual belief system? You know, it's just anything that benefits him. He's like hyper individualistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not so sure he cares about politics. Like if he really does or did the character, um, it's all for show, you know, at least that's how it seems. Taxes would probably be the only thing he cares about, like what the tax rate is, right? <laughs> I feel like the entire, and that's you. So you mentioned, Randy, the business card is what like sets him off to kill Paul Allen. I think the other aspect is like he's jealous that he gets restaurant reservations at this place, Dorcia. Like that's like a constant theme in the entire movie. He's like opening up his Zagat book and finding the restaurant it's like you if you're not at the right restaurant then yeah who are he's, you he's obs- like his obsession with status is off the off the uh, charts um when when he has paul allen at the at his apartment uh if i remember after he does the whole like huey lewis uh speech or whatever mm-hmm. paul paul allen says something about how pat not not like that patrick bateman guy he's a total loser and yeah. like he just flips out and does the axe thing. Yeah, totally. Oh, you were talking, I know what it was. You mentioned like the individual aspect of it too. And we did talk a little bit about like the, you know, work pressure under capitalism and just kind of the, the structure you're in. And I made a couple like notes a little bit about, um, we don't have to like, I don't want to make this like a theory thing, but sort of like the idea of like alienation, like Marx has like an idea of theory of alienation and not to get like into the weeds, but it's, you know, he thinks of himself, I think it leads you to conform in a way that he has like ultra conform to this finance system. Like if he wasn't as wealthy and he was 
you know, working class. I think he he would still kill a bunch of people. It just would be a different structure he's in. He he would still conform to whatever social status he's in. It doesn't really matter for him. I think I think I feel what you're saying. Like I imagine this is by no means any try to like simping or like licking the boots of <laughs> the bourgeoisie. But like I imagine it's lonely. Like when you get that high up and you don't have anything and people only want to be around you for your money. But at the same time, it's like you exploited other people to get there. So like you're never going, you've never, what am I thinking? Like you're not in the position to get like genuine relationships and have genuine human emotions because of the position that you put yourself in. Like there is a tax that comes with being shitty. That's <laughs> like a really, that. I, I, think, I think that's a really important point. Um, like connection piece about, about how it alienates us in that way, whether you know, you're making $500,000 or, or if you're like barely getting by, you're alienated from, you know, just from connections that in a lot of ways because of how capitalism affects all of us. Um, and it's, I don't know if everyone else notices, maybe I was projecting when I was watching the movie, but like nobody was actually connecting. It was all just kind of uh, transactional. Super, like superficial. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very surface, very transactional, no like real connection to anything. And like all the characters were like that, and especially the the men. Um, but yeah, the, the alienation piece, I think, you know, and again, I almost question if I'm projecting, but like I definitely sense it in the movie um, pr pretty, you know, significantly. Yeah, and like when he's um, with his friend and the other lady, I think Christy, we yeah. said her name was. Yeah, Christy. But when like at, before they have a threesome or whatever, um, he's telling them like what his position is at work and kind of like what he does, but he doesn't even care about it. And kind of like what you were saying, Randy, that like, there's no real connection in the film at all, even with, you know, people that he has clear power over, like they're still not interested either, even when he's paying for their time. They're, they call him like other people's names. They're like they'll talk to him. Oh, hey, what's up, Paul Allen or whatever. It's like, oh, I thought like they totally knew each other, but he's calling him <laughs> some other day. I think yeah. that just, yeah, oh, go ahead. Oh, I just was going to say, and uh, there's one part where, like, Patrick is like, oh, yeah, I'm into murders and executions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the lady thinks that, like, he says mergers and acquisitions. And, you know, just that, like, interchangeable language faces, you know, like, they're all just the same hollow shell, you know, that's like a result of that overindulgence and capitalism. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the the how he the it made me think of there's like multiple times in the movie where he literally openly says to someone, multiple people like his fiance, like that he's like can't control himself, he's like gonna kill people or he's filled with rage. I don't know, those those are paraphrasing. And people just sort of like don't even think twice or hear him or notice him because they're probably on the same end, self involved and like don't you know they're they have their own shit going on absolutely yeah, yeah. oh sorry randy go ahead <laughs> no, no, you can go ahead uh i just was gonna say that like what you were saying evan that um 
when he's killing Christy, like with the chainsaw that she's like banging on the doors and like running around, you know, through the building and no one is coming to help her. And it's kind of like, you know, this is happening all before our eyes. But like you said, you know, we're just so self indulgent and like in our own things that we're not even realizing like the horrific things that are happening in front of our face. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Exactly. And to to touch or to add to that, right, the scene where he's he's got the body in the bag or whatever, he's dragging it through the lobby, and there's this trail of blood, right, in the doorman or whatever, like, doesn't even, like, blink an eye, right? No. It's like, yeah. He, he, he's putting the body in the trunk, and Lewis shows up, he's like, no, Lewis, you're mistaken, I'm not here, or whatever it is. And like nobody notices this dead body with blood everywhere. It's like the, wow. the best line of that entire scene is when Lewis says, "Like, oh, where did you get that overnight bag?" And yeah. he's like, "I got it at wherever oh, the hell he got it, like yeah, yeah, Bloomingdale's or something." And he just like that's like he doesn't he, he's transfixed on the the material aspect, not that he's carrying this like gigantic two hundred pound body or whatever, like into a taxi cab trunk to go put in his own apartment, right? I think it's where he stores it. No. In uh, Paul Allen's apartment, he like right. stores all of his bodies there. Yeah. And like, and the, whoever presumably that apartment doesn't notice that this other guy is just going into like, there's very much all of the service workers and working class people in this movie are meant as like sort of faceless. I don't think there's a name ever given. I mean, they're not really involved in the movie, but they're just kind of, exist to serve all of these people like the in the i think in the book it's even worse is there they treat the like the waitress kind of rudely in one of the scenes if i remember it's pretty pretty indicative of probably how these people treat anyone beneath them yeah and that's kind of like a a common theme between fight club and american psycho is like that treatment of service workers just in general um because you know, Tyler, like, talks about, like, how don't fuck with people who make your food, like, and he pees in the soup and all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, well, it, it's, it's funny you mentioned Fight Club because I was just going to, this is just one note, is that Jared Leto is in both of these movies. Yep. <laughs> which I think is just pretty funny in general. But in the, like, in Fight Club, the... Yeah, I think like the the juxtaposition of like how they see the service workers are the ones who are doing all these things, mm-hmm. and these rich finance dudes are to treat them like shit. They're gonna, they're I mean, they're not gonna do anything significant, but I guess the possibility is, you know, the the ultimate thing they would do is reach class consciousness. I guess is realize that these fuckers don't don't care about anything. Yeah, that's like the difference between like the two films is like there's a lot more like class unity like tyler durden like when he's just narrator like is becoming like a class traitor right where he's going against the interests of the economic ruling class whereas like patrick bateman doesn't do that he's just preying on the economic ruling class like that's like all his goals are like surrounding that there's a lot more community in fight club whereas in i mean that's like the opposite like where she was saying like with the like how could you like go around knocking on doors no one answers but it's like that's because of like capitalism and like pulling people away stranger danger was really prominent in the 80s and 90s because of like mm. the satanic panic and all of that and like the fear of like 
illegal immigrants, right, coming to snatch your wives. This horrible, right? And like the war on drugs and all of that was going on. So it was meant to like pull people apart and like isolate ourselves so that we wouldn't come together. So it, it makes sense when you put it into that context why nobody would open a door yeah. for somebody else yelling and screaming down the hallway. Well, and I was thinking too in in Fight Club, the you said that it's more of like a unity of within classes. I mean, there's even like police that are involved. You see later, it's like it's a very cross group mm-hmm. people. Which I don't actually. I feel like when we we discussed that a few weeks ago, I didn't. I don't think I thought about that that the cops were um, part of Project Mayhem, at least some of them. Uh, but in this movie, like, you don't even. The only time you don't actually ever see a, I oh, know you do see a police officer. There is a shootout mm-hmm. later in this movie, which when I first saw this movie years ago, I thought that that was like a dream sequence mm-hmm. because it almost feels like too crazy. I don't know. Yeah, like, that is it, what. Oh, okay, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was just gonna say it's just it's like you can do you can have like a fight, a police shootout, and if you're rich enough, it doesn't matter. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I was watching an interview earlier about the director that she said that, like, her biggest regret is people thinking that it was a dream that, like, it didn't actually happen. Um, And that that was one thing that, like, she wished that she could kind of portray differently within the film. Yeah, it does feel like that because he's, he's like, hyperventilating, running around, killing a bunch of the security guards and everything. I think when I watched it again, I I knew it wasn't because I'd seen it. But it still felt that like a of a dream sequence, like he's having an out of body experience. I think is probably more what she was going for. Mm-hmm. Baby, yep. baby, I don't know exactly. Yeah, no, I I got that sense as well. Watching it, it did seem very close to a dream sequence. But but to the point about the um, with the you know the privilege and, and sort of getting away with it, the scene where he's uh, eating with the detective William Defoe's character. And basically, William Defoe's character, like, he gives him an out. He basically tells, gives him an alibi by saying, but uh, Patrick Bateman asks him, you know, oh, well, who else was there with Paul, with these other guys? He names them and he says, and you. And then he's like, relieved. He's like, oh, yeah. So, yeah, that's where I was. And like, I was like, oh, man, he totally just like let him, you know, out. It's funny. So I read a note on IMDb about the Willem Dafoe police, or I guess not a police. He's a private detective mm-hmm. character. Apparently every scene with Patrick Bateman, they played it as if he knows he's guilty. He's like suspicious or he like doesn't dismisses him as a subject. And then they like, cause in some of the scenes he does feel like he is suspicious. And then other ones he doesn't. Mm-hmm. It's like they, yeah. I mean, like you said, he is giving him an out because He's received, like, and he tells him where he was at that little dinner you're talking about, and he doesn't remember. Obviously, it's not true because everyone is mis misidentifying, you know, Patrick Bateman and the whole thing. So, I don't know. I think it's a the the direction, like the director, um, did a great job. I think with literally everything in this movie. Honestly, I just uh, want to know why people, like, especially like younger men relate to this and they want to strive to be Patrick Bateman when he, it's so unrelatable for the vast majority of people like at, at what point did this happen <laughs> money <laughs> you know money like the illusion yeah. of freedom privilege right. yeah. you know I, I think that like Patrick Bateman just epitomizes 
like American white dude privilege um, and, you know, just being able to kind of get away with everything that you can as long as you have the money for it. But what, what do you think the demographic of people who do identify? I think it's a, like a wide demographic of when I say demographic, obviously they're all mostly going to be white men, but mm-hmm. I mean like young people because they're young and they like strive to this as like, you know, cause it, their, their path to being rich is probably very slim under our system. So mm-hmm. they, well, I think, oh, go ahead. Uh, I just was going to say, I think like maybe, you know, some of the, the younger kids who kind of identify with Andrew Tate, um, as, as you know, like I teach high school. So like some of the, the younger kids are like really latching on to some of those ideas just, you know, because it's a lifestyle, it's a persona, it's appearance. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, we're kind of conditioned to, to over consume and, kind of desensitized to any thing that takes any level of empathy. And so I, I think even though we may not want to like think this, he's probably more relatable to, to people than we think. I think it fits in also in with like the whole uh, red pill thing where mm-hmm. they, they think, you know, they're going to escape the matrix. Uh, if they just get rich, um, they'll be free. You know, and, and it's like, it's pretty prevalent. I get, I get a lot of those type of comments um, on TikTok from, you know, younger guys. And, you know, I post a lot of, uh, like, commie, uh, fun, you know, funny commie stuff. And, boy, that really triggers them. And uh, but the, and they, I totally get a lot of that where it's just like they want to be rich. They want to be, you know, they're, they're misogynist. You know, they're, it, it's just. Uh, a big like mixture of all bad things like nothing good in that mix well like growing up in a society where you are told that you're owed all of these things and it not following through like you're not getting those right the meritocracy isn't real uh women do in fact are like they're their own people Crazy. Who because, would have thought? Right? <laughs> well, and it came I, easier in the eighties, right? Too, like you think mm. about the eighties and your prospect of having buying a home and having, like, not obviously being like Patrick Bateman wealthy, but like having a comfortable life was more attainable. And now I think people are younger, seeing it's it's not possible. They're never going to own a fucking home. Yeah. Never going to have a. I mean, it doesn't. I think there's other, you know, issues too, where they go down the path of like that misogynistic, you know, way, but. I think some of it just like in general comes from ignorance. I think that like more things are implicit than we like to think. And, um, you know, that not that like, not to sound like I'm like sympathizing with them, but like, you know, sometimes they just, they don't know any better. And especially like teenagers at such uh, an impressionable age, you know, they've grown up on the internet with these idealized kind of personas of what life is like or what life could be like. And, you know, it's enticing to them. And so I, I think that sometimes they they come real quick like out of pocket especially on tiktok you know commenting away saying whatever with no repercussions um but 
you know, just like in the movie, Patrick Bateman doesn't really have any consequences. And so I think that that is also part of, um, you know, idealizing that experience as well. Um, but we did mention earlier the, just because I think it's kind of unrelated to this, but there's several scenes in this movie where they mention or he like wish thinks he sees like Donald Trump's car and I mm. his like his first wife, like yeah. in a restaurant and in the book, there's a bunch more scenes. And I was at your uh, suggestion. I think you sent me a few articles, Destiny, about like the author's politics, which I'm still very confused on. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I, I, I think yeah. I sent to you. I feel like he's he seems to be for my like trying to understand it. He just seems like more of like a centrist kind of privileged mm-hmm. person who yeah. is like, oh, don't freak out about Donald Trump, which is some of the things he was saying. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. at the same time, like, well, we also need to be like liberalish in our like I kind of like Joe Biden, but I also don't like Joe yeah. Biden. So I don't I don't know. He's yeah. uh, apparently he's also very active on Twitter. and I don't I don't use Twitter anymore. See, like the socially liberal but fiscally conservative yeah. So, yeah. So you're just like, yeah. yeah, I was just gonna say, right? That's what you were saying, <laughs> like exactly like that. And and, and I think we I, I don't know if we mentioned already is that like Donald Trump was a whether you like it or not, especially in the eighties and in New York, was seen as this. He had his like casinos and his towers and all this. He was very much probably what some people wanted to be or have like this empire that they perceive his name on everything. Mm-hmm. And even Patrick Bateman is looking up to Donald Trump, which I think is just perfect. Yeah. Well, that was, that was his uh, sort of how everybody saw him then. And I remember being, you know, a young teen and my mom got his book, but I don't even know what it's called. Art of the deal. Yeah. 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 So I'm like I seeing this book on there <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like everybody would just it looked up to him, admired him. Oh, look how successful he is. And back then he was a Democrat. So like he wasn't completely hated, um, it, but he was rich. So Republicans also liked him. It was like, he was kind of universally uh, admired by certain part of society. So yeah. yeah, I think they definitely captured that <laughs> in the book, especially. Well, there's a scene where he, before when he has dinner with Paul Allen, where he, like he thinks he sees like Ivana Trump over there. And what's I going to say about it too, is that he, yeah, it's almost like Trump in the eighties personified that exact kind of person to like the fiscally conservative, socially liberal, right? Like he was a Democrat because he went, wanted to go to the same social events as other Democrats, but he just wanted to still have low taxes so he could keep all his money. So it's, I don't know. It's like, it's the same person. It's the same, it's, it's, it's the same pyramid scheme of like rotten finance and capital. Yeah. And the eighties like really helped contextualize a lot of the stuff that's like going on both in the book and in the movie, like um, on your notes, you were talking about how like homophobic it is in the book um, and in the movie too, but like, you know, it's like during the AIDS epidemic and people are kind of falling prey to that propaganda and, you know, it's, um, yeah. <laughs> well, Ronald Reagan, I mean, well, we all, we don't have to go down that rabbit hole of him, but the yeah. one scene in the movie and the book that they mentioned is like, they're talking about HIV mm-hmm. and they're talking about how like, oh, they think you can get like all these other diseases, like that aren't dyslexia, at all. Dyslexia, right? Yes, like dyslexia. Random. <laughs> yeah, just about to think. I think in, 
I don't remember in which of the book or the movie they talk about how like, oh yeah, we can't get it because we're men. I don't know. It was something they, they, they use some like weird excuse as to why they wouldn't be able to contract the age virus somehow. And I guess cause they're rich. And so, you know, we can't, can't do that. Yeah. That does seem to capture the way that probably most people perceived, you know, that community within the eighties, especially. I think we talked a lot. I think we already talked about the like, like all the materialism in this movie and consumerism. But I think that goes back to that uh, individualistic, you know, sort of um, emptiness that people feel is like the only way they can actually feel any kind of happiness is to have and talk about their Armani suit or whatever it is. From his perspective, though, he can afford whatever he wants, where I feel like that's deemed okay. Like if you're rich, you can buy lots of fancy clothes and shit. But if you're, you know, working class, you buy something nice and it's like, how dare you enjoy your, your, your life by buying like a nice TV or. Stop spending your $5 on Starbucks. <laughs> yeah. Right. Or like your avocado toast says, you know, now like, Oh God forbid. I, I, I just, it's like that. But just in general, like the idea of the consumerism was so rampant, like malls were, everywhere you know across mm -hmm. the the country um in the 80s something like five malls were built per day or some insane statistic like that so i don't know i don't know if anyone has any consumerism but i, I don't know I, I almost found like all of the talk about all the things of brands and stuff that i'd never heard of or like whatever buy or own just almost funny like it almost made me kind of laugh especially in the book it's just on and on and on about his stereo and his speakers and the whole thing it's boring it's like sad like yeah. that's yeah. all they have yeah, to okay. talk about at the end of the day is like mineral water and where it comes from mm -hmm. or like oh this is one of the other things like he talks about music a lot mm -hmm. and then like th they were going back and forth about like the stereo system like who has the best stereo system he's like well does it do this does it have a laser disc does it do like it's it's so silly because it's like there's more happening in life but like i guess when you're that high up like normal working class problems aren't happening like you don't have to worry about like getting cancer or like missing work and like the plight of the working class. So like all you have is these like superficial issues. Well, but like, there is a time when his fiance says that they should get married and he says like, I can't take the time off work, which I think is like, <laughs> which is so funny because it's like he almost sometimes like imposes like regular people problems on himself that don't actually exist, which I think mm -hmm. is like what also what you're saying is he doesn't have to worry about those problems, but somehow he him does. being like, I got to go return my, my movies to Blockbuster. <laughs> my tapes. <laughs> I got some tapes. <laughs> my tapes. Constantly, like four or five times. That's his excuse. Like, like I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> Where he could just like easily go buy the movies. He could just pay the fine, but that's like his excuse. So he's just like, yeah, I got to go return my <laughs> yeah. movie that I've rented 27 times in a row. When, when American Psycho first came out, absolutely every guy i knew started using i gotta return some videotapes was like everybody would say it whenever they want to just like dip or whatever it would it would be purposefully you know like in jest but like it was everywhere after it came out there actually were tapes then like too like yeah i was saying and i think oh. last week is that the 
you actually like had to go as a blockbuster pick out your your movies, which I do actually miss as a cultural I to, event. I do I to, too. I used to work at Blockbuster. Nice. I worked next to like our like at an ice cream store that was next to like the local store, and so there's, we'd always, you know, always go there. There's always an ice cream store next to the Blockbuster. It, yeah, it's true. Um, was it something you also mentioned? Is the the tapes? Uh, he does watch uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He does. Like in preparation, like it kind of like foreshadows kind of how Christie's going to die. Um, but yeah, because he's like sprinting like, naked down the hallway yeah. with a chainsaw. Yeah, well, but when he's like watching the movie, he's just like doing crunches watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like that is normal. <laughs> You don't do that in your free time? Well, no. <laughs> well, uh, um, Bale said that in the, like when he was filming the movie, he did the routine that he described in the, like in the morning, not the mm. face stuff, but like the crunches and like the breakfast and all like, that's what he was actually doing because he's so I bet he was ripped. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, oh, I know what I was going to say. The one woman in this movie that I think is, we didn't mention at all, was his secretary. And I'm blanking on his, oh, her name. Um, Chloe. 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 Sorry. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't kill her in the end. Like, he has her over, and I'm pretty sure it's what he's planning to do. Yeah. I don't know what anyone makes of her character and sort of why you think he changed his mind. Hmm. Well, I, I mean, in the movie, he pulls out, like, this huge, like, staple gun puts it to the back of his head like he's going to do it. And then he gets a phone call. Um, and I don't know, I guess it's his girlfriend or something or one of, one of the girls, that, one of the women that he's doing whatever he's doing with leaves a message and that totally like distracts him and he puts it down in the movie. I, yeah. I forget how it is in the book. In the book, he like walks her home to like mm, her place right. and she's trying to get him to come inside and then he's just like, no. I, I can't. I <laughs> I'm going to kill them. you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I don't want to hurt you. <laughs> I, know, I know. So that's how you're right, though, Randy. It like, plays out with the, him like thinking to do it. The message comes on about, I think it's then she notices like he is still involved with Courtney or. Is it Elaine? Elise? I don't know what's her name. Um, I, I had it. I think here. it was Elaine, right? Or is it Evelyn? <laughs> It's Evelyn. 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 Sorry, well, I've been reading too much of Coco. I'm really, well, <laughs> I'm really impressed. Yeah, but, but I'm my, impressed like, that you guys remember that. Well, I have the IMDb open here. I cheated. Nice. Um, <laughs> but the the um, theory that I was thinking about, or just like way I was trying to picture it, is he views her like as she's not. So he he does kill sex workers who are not like wealthy like him. Mm-hmm. But somehow, but he sees them like as less than people. Like he doesn't even perceive them as even human. But she's like, she works as a secretary. She's probably not making a lot of money. She's working class, dealing with his, you know, bullshit to get him, you know, sparkling water, make his reservations. I feel like he almost didn't. I wonder if he like he didn't feel like she was worth it, or some like there's something about her that she was actually she was actually the only character that had like any human emotion in the whole movie. Yeah, I, I mean, he, it could be like his proximity to her because he's around her all the time too. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That makes a. It would be kind of a. He killed a coworker, but he can't kill two. That'd be too much. <laughs> <laughs> you can only kill uh, Paul Allen, yeah. right? Two, two would be out of pocket. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, one of the, so one of the movie scenes I, 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 when I was like going on YouTube to like look at some of the scenes to rewatch, I noticed someone posting the scene where he goes back to Paul Allen's apartment after his like fantasy dream, not dream sequence, but that scene. And With the, the realtor? Yes. Yeah. And I feel like that scene is one of the most like chilling. Like that was actually the title of this like video was like the chilling scene in the movie, but it does feel very chilling. And I think it's because you don't know at this point, you're not sure like if that's, I think that's maybe why people thought it was a dream because like it's all like gone or something or whatever it is, but it, it just feels like other people are involved in his nightmare or his murderous rampage Mm-hmm. and just kind of like go along with it like his lawyer later too is like i was with so-and-so in paul allen in london or whatever it was so everyone is just going along with him yeah because the realtor she says like don't cause any trouble yeah and like don't come back here i think also something like that like the closet's cleaned out like th- can you imagine like the cost to to clean up this killing i don't know it's it's not like the john wick cleaners on (laughs) (laughs) yeah or uh or the guy from pulp fiction i can't think of his name but like Mm. the guy who comes in like the fixer oh the wolf the wolf yeah um it could maybe be like like uh symbolizing like people's complicity or like you know how some people just kind of like go along with it, even though it is like harmful for other people. You know, we participate in this system of capitalism and just like I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, maybe maybe I'm maybe maybe I'm trying to pull too much out of that, making too much out of that scene. But um... it, it, that's kind of a tough scene, at least for me, to process because like. I just don't see that happening in real life. But like, if I try to imagine, okay, how would that happen? Is that like, is that a statement about privilege? You know what I mean? Like they can get away with it, like because of their privilege. I don't know. Both white privilege and economic and privilege. Exactly. Both. Yeah. 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 Sure. I, I was thinking too, in general too, like, like I said before is, you know, it seems like his hiring at that company was like a nepotism hire because his dad like practically owns the place. I think is the line that Reese Weatherspoon says is he, if he's like giving him his job, essentially, you know, assuming like his lawyer is probably like his dad's lawyer, you know, whatever. So it's just this network of, you can float to the top because you have someone pulling you, you know, along for the ride and send him to Harvard and and wherever else. So that is pretty typical. If you ask me, um, the, the nepotism thing and, um, is, a lot of, a lot of like high executives got to where they got because of connections and nepotism. At least in my experience, uh, yeah. The very end of the movie, when he's sitting back down with like his friends, you know, at that club or whatever, they're, you know, he's flipped out. He realizes he got away with everything. He's kind of going on. I was trying to find like the little like monologue in his head at the end where it's like real also super chilling. I was trying to find, oh, I hear, so I'll just read this last part. So this is, but even after, uh, what do you say? Uh, oh, it says, my pain is constant and sharp. I do not hope for a better world for anyone. 
I, in fact, I want my pain to be inflicted upon others. I want no escape. But even after admitting this, there is no catharsis. I gain no deeper knowledge about myself. No new knowledge can be extracted from my telling. There's been no reason for me to tell you any of this. This confession has meant nothing. Like, How nihilistic. A, <laughs> yeah, it's like a pretty crazy, like, you know, and then it just it goes to, uh, and then the, so the end of, like, the last line of the book, I think, is the sign they show in the movie, which says, this is not an exit. I think this is the last line of the book, and then they show that on the book, which is a cool poetic way to end it. Um, but, yeah, Patrick Bateman, people out there, you don't want to be like Patrick Bateman. But I don't know if anyone has any last uh, last thoughts, anything, anything else. I don't think so. I think we got it all. Yeah. For the most part, we covered all. Yeah, the important I feel like things. that. Uh, you don't you don't you don't come back from that line too. Like it's just he he just wants everyone to suffer like him in yeah. opulence and luxury. Yeah, he's, uh, he's an empty, an empty show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, I was, I, so I, I talked about some of the random little, like trivia things. So there's one that I mentioned. I, I made a video on TikTok about this, and I think it's super funny. Is there's a scene in the book where he meets Tom Cruise in an elevator in his building because they live in the same building, and he's, I think this kind of fits into the whole Donald Trump thing. I should have mentioned it before. Is that he's like awestruck by Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise views him how Patrick Bateman views everyone below him. So it's like he's a step up. He calls his movie Cocktail, he calls it Bartender. Like cocktail. He says, I, I like your Bartender. <laughs> oh and, yeah, and, I like your Bartender. You know, Tom Cruise does not care about him at all. He just wants to leave this conversation. I just, I thought that scene like shows like such a good, I wish they, they couldn't have paid Tom Cruise for this movie, of course, but it would have been awesome. And that scene I feel like was like one of the funniest scenes in the whole book too. I thought I mentioned it for anyone, but yeah, there, yeah, yeah. And then the other things too is like all the people that were apparently wanted to be his character, like instead of Christian Bale, it's like Ewan McGregor, and then they wanted to get Leonardo DiCaprio, and they're going to pay him twenty million bucks. And yeah, then, but uh, some like feminist writer talked him out of it because you know she was like, "Oh yeah, this movie super misogynistic. Like you shouldn't do it. It's going to end your career." Right. Well, they told Christian Bale the same thing, and he's like, "No, fuck it, I'm going to do it." And, yep. And it like this was early in his career. I feel like it helped make his career, honestly. Really, though, yeah. And then Leo played the wolf on Wall Street, like Jordan Belfort. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, this was like came right, came out like a couple years after Titanic, so I guess they wanted like the biggest actor they could. And mm -hmm. then I think they the they fired the director briefly, like when they were going to have DiCaprio in it. And then when they got rid of, they weren't going to have, he said no, then they brought her back, which I don't know. Yeah. I just think it's crazy. This movie only cost 7 million bucks. It made 35. I'm sure it sold a million DVDs too. Like every dude out there bought a copy of American Psycho or whatever, but. Um, yeah. It's interesting how it's like become kind of like a cult classic now. Cause I feel like, I mean, obviously it did make money, but I don't think that it was probably as well received as it might be now because you know you can no. kind of talk about the satire and critique it and you know have conversations just like this yeah yeah <laughs> i think i think the book was really um controversial when the book came out i could and, imagine yeah <laughs> yeah because yeah i mean it was just so incredibly misogynistic and every every other you know terrible thing so 
it makes sense, right? That <laughs> when the movie was about to be made, that it, it would have such a, an effect. Well, just like Fight Club too, I think, and I think mm-hmm. these like goes together in a good pair. Also, was like not really a success. It made some money, but not like gobs of money like they won. I don't feel like they really make movies. These books, these books would never be made into movies today. I don't think. But yeah, thanks you again to uh, Destiny, Hungry Rye, and Randy. Thank you all for being here to discuss this. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of thank course. you. Absolutely. Well, everyone, uh, you can listen to this uh, on your uh, podcast platform of choice and have a good night.